Heavenly Father, Lord, we need to hear from you, and so we just invite you here right now. We know you're already here. We don't have to extend the invitation, Lord. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are in and through everything in our lives. And for that, we're grateful, God. But we especially ask that you be with us here this morning, with our community, with our family, and we ask that you would speak to us in ways that only you can. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine the scene. Uh, Those of you who are students, you need to imagine it too. You're sitting in class, and as you are um, sitting there listening to a lecture from your teacher, from your professor, a gunman walks in the door. A crazed madman walks in the door. There's panic in the room. And no one knows what is happening. And the gunman lines everyone up in a straight line at the back of the classroom. And he walks up to the first person in the line in the class. And he asks them, are you a Christian? And the person says, yes. Last Thursday in Oregon... In a little town called Roseburg, this very thing happened. A gunman entered a community college classroom. He lined everyone up in the back of the room, and one by one, he asked them, are you a Christian? In in another report, he went into a classroom where everyone was still seated, And he asked, would all the Christians please stand in the classroom? The title of the message today is Standing for the Faith, Literally. Literally. What happened on Thursday in Roseburg, Oregon, at Umpqua Community College, um, we need, as a, as a community, as a people, we need to recognize and see it for what it is. We need to recognize that today in churches in Roseburg, uh, they're missing people in their church today. They're missing um, young college students who were attending last Sunday, and today they're not there. What we saw as a nation on Thursday were Christians who stood for their faith and literally, literally stood for their faith and literally received the consequence of that action. Ironically, it is not unlike what will happen today in the book of Esther as Mordecai stands in a way not unlike the Christians stood in Roseburg, Oregon. Let us stand together as we read from the story. We're going to be in Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. 
When virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai and uh, had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. When an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he promoted Haman. Here's a new character. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate, they bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. He remained standing. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them. Mordecai would not listen. That they told it to Haman. They got so fed up, they went to Haman and said, look what he's doing. They told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai instead. And so instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. You may be seated. Verse uh, 19 again. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. We'll stop right there for just a moment. The, the second time mentioned there, those of you who are just joining the story, you may, uh, some of you uh, who are familiar with the story in the past may recall uh, that, that the king, King Ahasuerus, had gathered together all the young maidens in the land to come and participate in really a, a contest, not unlike uh, The Bachelor that Pastor Tom referenced last week. It's a very apropos Illustration, a very apropos parallel. And uh, the king had brought together many young maidens to see who would win, who would become the queen. Here it's indicated that uh, virgins or, or young maidens were gathered a second time. But the word second there is a little bit obscure in the Hebrew. It could mean uh, various women were gathered. Um, it could simply mean that there was a, not so much a second contest as there was simply a, a formal gathering in the, in the uh, women's house, in the harem of the women for some official purpose. In any event, as the women are gathering, it's indicated there that Mordecai sat within the king's gate. The words king's gate there are significant. Uh, they indicate that Mordecai has a position of, of power a position of some influence. 
Uh, he's not in the inner circle of the king. He's not a, a prince. He's not uh, on the, in the inner court, if you will. But he is within the king's gate. That is to say, he, is, he has some capacity under King Ahasuerus. He has some distant, remote uh, governmental capacity that he conducts. Mordecai has achieved a certain status in the kingdom. Then there's a parenthetical comment, not, not in parentheses in the New King James, but really a parenthetical comment by the author in verse 20. He says, Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai. Despite becoming queen, she, she won the contest, right? Last week we, we learned that Esther won the contest. She was the most beautiful. She was the one who pleased the king the most. And as she won, as she became queen, notice the deference that she, sh- that she still shows Mordecai, her adopted father, her uncle. She still shows him deference, shows him obedience. And a part of that obedience was that Esther had still not revealed her family and her people. This goes back to chapter 2, verse 10, in which it is said uh, that Mordecai had commanded her not to do so. Per Mordecai's instructions, Esther was hiding, she was concealing her Jewish, ethnic, and religious identity. Now, was this good advice? Was this advice that Mordecai should have been giving to Esther? Well, it's, it's kind of difficult to know. On the one hand, talking about her identity, talking about uh, who she was as a Jew, as someone who's expected to follow covenant, follow Torah, talking about her identity and her religion probably would have ruled Esther out of the contest just like that. She probably wouldn't have even been selected to be a participant in the contest to become queen. Had she spoken of her Jewishness, had she spoken her religion publicly and followed its dietary laws and all the rest, Esther probably would not have even been in the contest and she surely would not have won the contest. On the other hand, living like a pagan Persian meant acting in ways that would be in direct violation of Jewish law. And so Esther had to ask herself, do do the ends justify the means? Neither Esther nor Mordecai could be sure if God would be pleased with such compromise. Such dilemmas get even more complicated when you're sitting in a college classroom in Oregon and a demon-possessed gunman enters the classroom, lines students up, and begins to ask, are you a Christian? I wonder, I wonder, actually, if Mordecai lived today. I wonder what Mordecai's advice would have been to those in the college classroom in Oregon. 
If Mordecai and Esther lived today, I wonder what Mordecai, what advice he would have given Esther had she been in that classroom. Maybe he would have, maybe he would have said something like this. Esther, keep your head low. Don't admit your religion to that pagan, to that demon-possessed gunman. Stay alive. Live to fight another day. Would that have been his advice? Because, golly, it, it, it sure kind of seems like his advice to Esther in chapter 2, doesn't it? Don't talk about your Jewishness. Don't talk about your religion. Don't raise your hand and say, yes, yes, I am a follower of the Lord God. Don't do it. Conceal it. Hide it. Don't let the king know about it. Don't let anyone in the palace know about it. Don't let anyone in that classroom know about it. Certainly not the gunman. Keep your head low. Stay alive. Try to make it another day. And I wonder, too, uh, how Mordecai's advice comports with the words of Jesus from Matthew 10. It's not up there, but I will read it to you. You can turn there if you wish. In 10, 32 and 33, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's be clear for just a moment about Matthew 10. Matthew 10 should be interpreted in the context of eternal reward, not eternal life. For Jesus and John and Paul and all of the scriptures attest that eternal life is once and for all received by faith in Jesus Christ, never to be lost. Once saved, John 10, 28 says we are never to be snatched from our Father's hand. Once saved, John 5, 24 says we are forever to have passed from death into life and we shall never again come into judgment. Charles Ryrie once said, eternal life would not be eternal if you could lose it. And so what Jesus means in Matthew 10, 33, when he says, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven, we can be sure that eternal life is not the topic on Jesus' mind, but rather of eternal reward. That they'll be denied in inheritance. That they'll be denied heavenly reward when they stand before the Lord on the last day. And so I wonder, I wonder, did Esther lose out on heavenly reward for heeding the advice of Mordecai? Had Christians in that organ classroom, had some Christians in that classroom verbally denied their faith in front of the gunman, would they have lost their reward? What about those who maybe just stayed silent? 
Did this crazed and demon-possessed gunman even deserve an answer? And is that really the kind of scenario that, that Jesus had in mind when he spoke the words of Matthew 10? Is that what Jesus was referring to? That kind of a scenario? I don't have perfect answers to these questions. I think that Christians should be very careful about rendering judgment too quickly on matters like these. For as the story of Esther will soon show, the temporary concealment of Esther's religion will soon help secure one of the greatest acts of deliverance in the Jewish nation. So we need to be slower to judge. And let us remember that as Christians, those of us who have called on the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. And something about that Holy Spirit is that it is said he will speak to you. He will tell you what you need to say when you face persecution. He will give you the words. He will tell you what to say and how to act when you face dire circumstances like those Christians faced in that organ classroom. So let's trust that God will speak to each Christian what they should say or do in those circumstances. And let's trust that those Christians will experience a clear conviction in their heart of what they are to say or do. A conviction that might sometimes look like Esther's conviction. And a conviction that might sometimes look like those of the students in Oregon who looked that gunman in the eye and said plainly, yes, I am a Christian. Back to verse 21, back to the king's gate. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthun and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both, both of the men were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Two of the palace guards, for reasons unknown to us, become angry with the king and seek to kill him. Politics is a dirty business. Those in power, they are constantly looking over their shoulders. There's one particular in here who knows that to be true, who's in politics. In fact, this little plot line in verse 21, it is a prelude to what actually happens to Xerxes later in his life. If you fast forward about 10 to 15 years in the year 465, Xerxes was assassinated. And do you know who he was assassinated by? One of his palace guards. According to ancient Greek history, the man Artabanus, who was Xerxes' royal bodyguard, deceived him, tricked him, and committed an act of treason. He killed Xerxes, and he killed Xerxes' son Darius. 
sedition, treason. It's part of the fabric of the fall of mankind. For whatever reason, we don't know why, these kings, the king's guards resented him. And so they sought to do him harm. I ask you just plainly to think for a moment. Do you seek harm to those that you resent? Do you... I don't think uh, we have any murderers out here. But do you seek to do harm? To hurt someone emotionally? Somehow relationally? Do you seek their, their physical demise? Anyone who you resent, who's done harm to you? This is a, a tit-for-tat world in, uh, in ancient Persia. But see, the way of Jesus is a lot different than that. Jesus speaks of showing grace to those who do us harm. Jesus speaks of praying for those who persecute us. Of doing good to those who would harm us. So who do you resent today? Maybe you even resent a friend. Maybe you even resent a family member. Go the way of Jesus. You'll find that that resentment will recede. Go the way of the ancient Persians. There'll just be continued chaos. Xerxes' men plot to harm him. But someone overhears their plans. Take a look at verse 22. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Queen Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. And both were hanged on the gallows. Mordecai overhears the plot to kill King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. And knowing full well that a threat to the king was also a threat to Esther, Mordecai promptly tells Esther what he had heard. And it says that Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now it should be noted, we should be very clear here. This is not an indication that Esther has indicated to King Ahasuerus that Mordecai is her uncle. She hasn't done that yet. That happens actually later on in Esther, in Esther chapter 8 verse 1. The, the familial relationship between Esther and Mordecai, the king doesn't even know about at this point. Nevertheless, Esther goes on behalf of Mordecai and says to the king, speaks about this threat, indicates who has revealed the threat. The king commissions an investigation. The guards are found guilty. They're hanged for treason. And it is recorded in the Persian Chronicles of the Kings. Not to be confused with, of course, our biblical book of First and Second Chronicles. Mordecai was a hero, Right? Of course, and of course we should expect the king to promptly reward Mordecai, which is precisely what doesn't happen next. Take a look at chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Immediately, stop right there for a moment. Immediately in the narrative, in the story, we're expecting the king to say, thank you, Mordecai. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for revealing the plot to me. Here is a higher position. Here is a higher role in the kingdom. And instead, the author immediately jumps to the next point in the plot. Mordecai gets overlooked. And instead of Mordecai being honored, the author very, very uh, cunningly demonstrates the contrast. Rather than Mordecai being honored, another man later on 
was raised up. Here we meet him. After these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Instead of Mordecai, another man is raised up. This man, Haman, was raised up to second in command over Xerxes' kingdom. As such, wherever, wherever Haman walked, the people of Persia were expected to bow down and pay him homage, pay him respect for his high office. But there was one man, there was one man who would not bow. There was one man who stayed standing. Literally. And that was Mordecai. Why did he stay standing? Well, many ancient Jewish scholars in their uh, Targums and Midrash on the text, they've indicated that Mordecai remained standing because he did not want to transgress the second commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, we find the commandment not to make or not to carve an idol, not to worship an idol. And it is also said, you know, not to, not to bow down, not to worship that idol, not to prostrate yourself in front of that idol. Something that's not God. And so it is said in a lot of ancient Jewish commentary that Mordecai did not want to transgress the second commandment to worship something else as God. But it's unlikely that the Persians would have considered Haman a god. Bowing down to him was primarily just a sign of respect. And it's not that unlike what other Israelites did before Mordecai. When in Genesis 23, Abraham bowed down to the people of the Hittites. A sign of respect. Abraham wasn't worshiping the Hittite people as God. He prostrated himself as a sign of respect, a sign of homage. It's not unlike Genesis 33, where Jacob bowed down to his brother Esau seven times, it says, as Esau was approaching him in Genesis 33. And it's not unlike in 1 Samuel 24, where David bowed down to then King Saul as a sign of respect, a sign of homage. He didn't, he didn't worship Saul as God. So why doesn't Mordecai bow down? It's not a transgression of the second commandment. Verse 1 includes one word that provides the key. And it says this, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Haman is described as an Agagite, that is to say an Amalekite, an ancient enemy of the people of Israel. In Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites, the, the Amalekites fought against the Israelites and Moses, those leaving the, uh, leaving the land of Egypt and heading to the promised land. It was the Amalekites, among many other nations, that tried to stop Israel from continuing on in Exodus chapter 17. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 25, there is a curse put on the Amalekite people for what they did. Let me read it to you. This is from uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says this in verse 17. God says through Moses, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Remember how he met you on the way, how he attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear. You were tired, you were weary. He did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you to possess as an inheritance that you, Israel, will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. 1 Samuel 15, King Saul tried to wipe out the Amalekites and failed. Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman because Haman is an Agagite. He is an Amalekite. He is a descendant of King Agag. And as such, they are mortal enemies of one another. They have a millennia-old aversion to one another. Haman, by his association with the Amalekite people, is by definition a mortal enemy to Mordecai and his people. So Mordecai stays standing. He refuses to prostrate himself in front of this pagan man. Well, Mordecai's actions get noticed. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were within the, the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why? Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to Mordecai daily that he would not listen to them. And so they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. The other servants of the king, they take notice of Mordecai's defiance. And then they ask him day after day, how come you don't bow to Haman? How come you don't bow to Haman? Anchor Bible, ta- uh, Anchor Bible commentator Kerry Moore says this about the story. Next slide. When the servants, were, were the servants, she, he asked the question, were the servants genuinely concerned for Mordecai's safety? And they were maybe chiding him in a friendly way? Were they merely curious why Haman wasn't bow, or why Mordecai wasn't bowing to Haman? Or were they resentful of Mordecai's superior attitude toward Haman? Three options that carry more posits, maybe the, the reaction of the servants they, as they asked Mordecai these questions. Were they concerned for him? Were they wondering what was going to happen to him if it was found out? Were they just kind of intellectually curious what the answer was or were they kind of resentful were they kind of looking at this as an opportunity to maybe I don't know get ahead of Mordecai I think the answer to this question is quite plain by what happens in verse 4 jump again to verse 4 it says they told it to Haman they told Haman what Mordecai was doing These servants, they weren't concerned with Mordecai's safety. They weren't merely intellectually curious as to why Mordecai would not bow down. They told Haman what was happening. Mallory, my daughter, 
has a very peculiar practice. She'll, uh, she'll walk downstairs and she'll be like, hey, mom and dad. We'll say, hi, Mallory, how you doing? And she'll say, oh, I just, I just wanted to tell you something. And we go, okay, what do you want to say? And, she's, and Mallory says, well, um, Amelia, I, and I just want to tell you this. I just, I just want to tell you. Um, Amelia upstairs, she, she, I just want to say, she wrote on her bed with markers. And I, I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to say that to you. And we're looking at Mallory like, oh, you just wanted to say that to us. That's interesting. That's interesting. You don't have any like, you know, stake in the game here. You don't have, you don't, you don't really care. You just, you just want to pass the knowledge. You're just kind of, hey, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> no, okay? Mallory is coming downstairs and coming before mom and dad to tell on her sister who has written in permanent marker all over her bed. That was really fun last week, wasn't it, honey? Yes, that was great. We were really happy about that. But the point is, Mallory was looking to do what? To get Amelia in trouble. She wasn't coming downstairs to tell us this just for our own intellectual curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. Fascinating. No. You tell because you want to get him in trouble. Mordecai's colleagues, they're laying down on the floor every time Haman comes into town, into the room. They are sick and tired of the fact that every time they bow, Mordecai stands quietly but defiantly. They're tired of the fact that Haman hasn't noticed that Mordecai doesn't bow. And so they decide to tell Haman, Haman, did you know that Mordecai doesn't bow to you? Take note, by the way, that Mordecai has very surprisingly, surprisingly revealed his identity in verse 4. He's done precisely what he told Esther not to do. Why does he do this? The text doesn't tell us. But for whatever reason, Mordecai told his colleagues that his Jewish identity, his Jewish religion, was one of the reasons that he does not bow to Haman. I tend to speculate that maybe he did it in a fit of uh, confusion to just try and get him off his back. It's because I'm a Jew. That's why. And perhaps he regretted saying it. Or perhaps he was more deliberate. Perhaps he, he spoke openly with his colleagues about the open hostility between Jews and Amalekites. The millennia-long hostility between the two groups. Perhaps he was more deliberate. We can't be sure. Nevertheless, Mordecai reveals his Jewish identity. He does precisely what he told Esther not to do. And his colleagues, well, they see an opening. They see an opportunity. They want to move up in the kingdom. Here's a chance to jump above Mordecai. And so they run to Haman. Haman, Haman, this Mordecai, this Jewish guy, he doesn't bow to you. Haman, what are you going to do about it? And here we have here we have a crisis that continues to play itself out over 2,500 years later. The crisis of whether or not 
religious accommodations should be extended to people in the public square. For Mordecai's strong aversion to the requirement that he bow down to an Amalekite ruler, Mordecai's strong hatred of the idea of bowing down before an Amalekite ruler, it is not at all, it is not at all unlike the strong aversion Christians have who are required by law to participate in ceremonies that they find morally objectionable. Like a gay wedding. The crisis of religious liberty on the one hand and public duty on the other in Esther chapter 3, 2,500 years ago, is the exact same crisis that you and I are looking at today in modern day America. Haman, Haman, this Mordecai, this Jew, he doesn't bow to you. Haman, what are you going to do about it? Judge, judge, this Christian, this Christian photographer, judge, this Christian pastor who has a wedding chapel in Idaho, judge. He refuses to marry homosexuals. What are you going to do, judge? What will the judges of America do? Well, we'll soon find out. Some have already found out. Uh, Some Christians have uh, already paid fines uh, to the tune of tens of thousands. There's one up in Oregon that's about to uh, be forced. They're going to seize, seize $135,000. Why? Because that Christian... And her husband, who have a bakery in Oregon, said, please, we'd rather not participate in making your wedding cake. $135,000 fine. What will the judges of America do? We're finding out already. What did Haman do? Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Mordecai quietly refused to bow to Haman. He simply stood. He stood for his faith, literally. He stood for his people, literally. He wasn't looking for a fight, but a fight came to him. And when Haman heard of Mordecai's defiance and the reason for that defiance, that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman's ancestral hatred for Mordecai and for the Jewish people rose up within him and he sought to kill not just Mordecai, but to use his power to kill all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. Have you heard that story before? Have you heard that story before? 
It's a story told nearly every century since the Jewish people have been a nation. It's a story that some in this room know about. Those of us who are too young to know about, to know about it in person, have grandparents that knew about it. It's the story of Adolf Hitler in World War II who sought to exterminate all the Jews, ended up doing a pretty good job of it, killed six million of them. It's a story you and I know all too well, those of us with eyes to see it right now. As a modern ruler of Iran, ancient Persia, spews words not unlike the Haman of old. Fortunate for the Jews today, they have a modern day Mordecai who is standing in the way of the modern day Haman. Unfortunately for Israel, I fear there might be a modern day King Ahasuerus on the world stage also, who is at worst, uh, at, who, who is at best unsuspectingly, and who is at worst insensibly letting Haman do whatever he wishes. But God is in control. And I'm sure that a modern day Esther will soon be revealed too. Don't suppose for a moment that this story has no bearing on today. Don't suppose for a moment that the quiet, pious defiance of a Christian in a distant land or in another state in Oregon, don't suppose that it has no bearing on us. We're in this together. We're called to bear one another's burdens. Let's make sure we're standing on the right side. Let's make sure we're standing for our faith, literally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, the, the story in Esther, it's, uh, it's uncanny, God. It's uncanny how much it, it means for us today. Thank you for this, this time in your word. Thank you for a lesson 2,500 years old. Oh God, help us not to repeat the mistakes that were made then. Help us to be wise. To see, to see you clearly, to see your enemies clearly. And as we listen to your Holy Spirit, to know precisely what we need to say and do that we might be a great witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.